Good morning. Good morning. Now, if you are tracking along with the seven challenges and this Lenten series, there is kind of a subject progression. Like for three weeks, we talked about relationship with God. And then for the last two weeks, including today, we're talking about social justice. And next week, we're going to talk about global missions. So there is this kind of progression. And when we talk about social justice, we also might must talk about uh, racial inequality, uh, racial injustice, or the positive form of that, which is uh, racial reconciliation. And so I'm going to introduce our speaker today, Michael Kim Eubanks. He's the team leader at Cal Christian Fellowship. He's been with InterVarsity a very long time, used to be at UCLA, now is team leader at Berkeley. So let's give him a warm welcome as he comes and do that. And maybe we can see the gospel with greater clarity. My name is Michael. It is good to see you. Um, you'll have to forgive me. My voice is a little scratchy. Andrew said I'm in a band called The Delivery. We had a show in the city last night. It was a rousing show. And then we, you know, you know how it is with loud bars and you're having to talk loud to have a normal conversation? It was, it was bad. Um, the show was great, but my voice is a little scratchy. Forgive me. Um, I want to introduce you uh, to who I am in a few different ways. So, my name is Michael. Um, can I get the next slide? I am married. I am married to one woman. Her name is Erina. Uh, this is us lying on a blanket shortly after being engaged. Um, that was at the Berkeley Marina. So, that is one way to introduce myself. Another way, I work for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. I work as a campus minister. This is my 11th year on staff with InterVarsity. I love it. I love it to pieces. I don't ever want to do anything else at this current moment. Um, next slide. I live in a house. I live in a big, big house with a good amount of rooms. We call it the Parker House. And it is one of the great joys of my life. These are my housemates. This is our kitchen. Uh, you'll be blessed to know that in our kitchen, we have... Uh, you know, push doors. It's the best. It's an awesome thing to be able to just, you know, back out of a door, back, you know, back into a door. You, 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 you know, you laugh at me now, but you get those uh, professional push doors installed in your house. It'll change your life. Um, what's the next slide? Is there anything else? Aha. And um, you'll know that I, um, the delivery is an R&B band. I love R&B with all my heart. I grew up listening to Marvin Gaye and Al Green and Earth, Wind, and Fire. Um, I grew up listening to Stevie Wonder. I was almost cast for the part of Michael Jackson. That is absolutely true. Um, and yet my favorite singer of all time is Elton John. He is my favorite. When I was 10 years old, I found Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, and it was all over. I'm being totally serious, by the way. That's not a joke. Um, I love Elton John. He is my favorite. Um, so I've been tasked with two things today. Uh, you know, two small things. Uh, simply to kind of give a biblical vision for racial justice. And then to encourage your church to participate in said racial justice. So we're good, right? Two small things. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. 
Uh, writing this sermon has been kind of like condensing 20 years of my life into 30 minutes. You ever have that feeling when someone asks you the question, so tell me about you? Like, what do I say? That's what I felt in the past few weeks. Um, it, what a joyful, challenging feeling it is to be able to tell the story of God and the story of my life um, in this way. Um, and I'll just agree with Andrew's sentiments. Uh, our country is in a moment. I call it a moment because it, I don't know what other word to use. Our country is in a moment. We are having a spirited conversation about racial justice all over the place. You know, whether it's indirect kind of actions, whether it's straight out on Facebook, whether it's candidate to candidate, we are in a conversation about racial justice. And over the past few years, I've seen that there are many ways that people get invited into that conversation. Some good, some not so good. My hope today is to sort of continue in the wave of good invitations. Um, and I happen to think that because I don't have to make it up, and because it's in the story of God, that Jesus himself has an invitation for us into the work of racial justice. Amen? Amen. Um, now, I know that my invitation and the word of the Lord today does not come in a vacuum. All of you have a story around racial justice. Some of you have been in this conversation for a while. Some of you have, you know, regularly engage racial justice in your own life. The work that you do, the relationships you have, the communities that you live in, they're totally, it's totally sort of in that stream. And for you, my invitation is, how is God moving you to continue to do the things that you're already doing or correct some of the things that you're engaged in? Um, I found that as I was uh, rereading the passage that we'll go through today, uh, I felt struck by something in particular that basically kind of checked and corrected me. Um, and I look forward to sharing that with you. Some of you have avoided the conversation of racial justice. You just don't want to talk about it. And let me tell you, I understand, okay? I find talking about race in any form, at least to some degree, uncomfortable. When I know that I'm going to have a conversation with a stranger about race, I can feel my heart flipping inside. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Don't ask me. Don't ask me. Don't ask me. Right? I have this feeling that I regularly have to overcome. Um, some of you just don't want to talk about it, which is okay because it's uncomfortable. And it's good for you to acknowledge that you don't want to talk about it. Some of you don't even think it has to do with Jesus, which is okay. I would understand if you didn't believe that it had to do with Jesus. I'm going to talk about that too. And my encouragement to you today, if that is you, is to just be open. Just be a little open. What might Jesus have to say to you, to us, to CLC, to our city, as we look to his word to figure out a little bit of what this racial justice thing is? So, um... We are going to take a tour of a couple chapters of Ephesians. Let me tell you about Ephesus. Um, I think Ephesus and the Bay Area are like cousins. 
I think that they, those two cities are a fascinating match for each other. Ephesus was this port city. There was all this sort of business going on, all this trading. There was a lot of money in Ephesus. Just like these days, there's a lot of money in the Bay Area. There's a lot of money. And the thing about Ephesus is that there was this big temple, the Temple of Diana, Temple of Artemis. And Ephesus was a very spiritually active place. Um, And because of all the trading that happened, and because of all the ways that Ephesus was very spiritually active, it is safe to say that Ephesus was probably a diverse place, a place with a lot of different kinds of people, with a lot of different kinds of backgrounds. You know, you've got people getting rich from the trade. You've got people struggling in their sort of regular inherited kind of uh, vocations. Um, you've got people from all around the uh, Asia Minor area, from all the nations around there coming together to be there. And then you have this church that develops in Ephesus. And I don't have time to tell you how the church started, but safe to say it wasn't pretty. Paul almost, Paul got injured, I'll say, um, in Ephesus. You can go to Acts 19 if you want to read about that. He's trying to start this church, and what he does is he threatens in some way, because he preaches about Jesus, uh, the way that these folks are worshiping at this temple of Diana, at this temple of Artemis, and they just don't like that. They don't like having their little worship party be challenged by Jesus. And if you know anything about Paul, Paul is the most confrontational being that there must be in the Bible, in my opinion. And he's like, no, it's Jesus. Um, Then that's sort of at the beginnings of how this church at Ephesus forms. It is a diverse church. And they have a problem to work out. Their problem is that you've got these folks called the Jews who for thousands of years have this story of how the God of Abraham has met them and led them and rebuked them and exiled them and gathered them back up. And they have this rich tradition. And then you have the Gentiles. These folks who from various nations have no conception of this God of Abraham. How do they live together? How do they even be together? Um, we're going to sort of take our tour through Ephesians. Um, and there should be <laughs> up on the screen. Um, we start at chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not the result of works so that, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us. 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. You are going to find um, that as we talk about Ephesians 2, Paul is fortunately or unfortunately redundant. Um, Paul actually says the same thing twice. And I wonder if we can go to the next slide. Hopefully it will be there. Boom. Paul says the same thing twice. So essentially, I'm going to say the same thing twice, because why make this stuff up? Um, Paul gives the bad news, right? He tells us what God has done. He gives us the good news, and then he tells us, so what? Right? And he does this in two ways. The first way he does it is he talks about sin. This crazy sort of, sort of uh, dynamic, and he describes it in what I think is a pretty rich way. He says, you were dead. You were dead. Dead. There's many ways to think about this idea of sin. Um, there's many sort of people who think about God all the time, theologians. They sort of are trying to find ways to understand this. Paul's way is striking to me because I, I don't like thinking about death at all. I hate it. Um, and to think about the fact that, that, that there was something true about me that was death. Sounds awful. Because it is. You were dead. In your disobedience. In the ways that you were missing God's mark. In the ways that you were surrendering to your own desires and senses. In the ways that you were acting in full wrath against God. You and I were dead. What horrible news that we could find ourselves because of the way that we live in a position that in someone's vision looks like death. And what does God do? By his grace, by the grace of God and the faithfulness of Jesus all of that stuff, right? The way I think about death and all of those things is that there's a way that because of my death, I cannot experience life, right? Soon as I die, boom, life, gone. It's over. And the way that Paul describes this death is that it's actually a hindrance to us being able to know God. And what happens in the midst of our death is that we get raised up with Jesus. It is amazing to me. I've been thinking about the resurrection for a few years as probably the most unfathomable thing I could ever think about because I've never seen it before. I'd like to see a show of hands of people that have seen a dead person physically come back to life. Right, right, it's crazy. It is absolutely crazy and it is amazing to me that in this state of death where we have no access to the life of God, Jesus says, nope, now you do. Praise God. Praise God. He gives us access to the life of God again. He raises us up and even seats us in heavenly places with Jesus. It's not just that he fixes the things that are wrong in us, 
This is about being with God in Jesus forever. What a great gift. What a great gift. The good news is that we're saved. We are saved. The craziness of death because of Jesus is now the joyfulness of life. The thing about being saved is this. There's a theologian named N.T. Wright, and what he does is he says, basically think about it like this. There's a lawyer, and this lawyer is mounting this case against you, and it is airtight. It's absolutely airtight. You have no defense. You did it. All the crimes, all the evidence is there. You did it. You're guilty. And then the lawyer and then the judge comes, and the judge hears the evidence, and he goes, not guilty. What? Not guilty. That is what it is to be saved. And there's no double jeopardy, my friends. There is no double jeopardy. No one can then retroactively go back and go, ha, 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 no, guilty. Nope, not guilty. That is who you are in the presence of God because of Jesus. Not guilty. We are with him forever. Because of Jesus. And the implication is two things. It's around this, this funny word. Uh, it says that we are who he has made us, um, made in Christ Jesus for good works, right? When you see the words, we are who has made us, some of your Bibles might say we are his workmanship. And the Greek word for workmanship is actually the word poema, which is where we get the word poem. So actually, the thing that you are is a very meticulously intentionally made creation. That is who he's made us to be. You're not just a thing sort of fashioned in a machine for the purpose of being productive. We are the gifts of God. We have been made carefully by God to do specifically good things that he had in mind before we had a mind. So, we get this crazy story. The bad news, we were dead. What did Jesus do? He raised us up. The good news, we're alive and we're saved. And now we are made intentionally to do intentional things. Well, for some reason, Paul decides he wants to say this story again. So I'm just going to keep reading Ephesians 2. And I want you to see if you catch on to the ways that Paul essentially tells this story again. I'll start at verse 11. So then remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision, by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of two, thus making peace. 
and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. He tells the same story again, but this time he looks at this community and he says, look, I know how it is. I know what you think is most true about you, which is that you Jews are over here and you Gentiles are over here and you Gentiles had no access to God. You think that this distinction and all of the history and animosity and violence, both uh, physical and verbal and emotional, is the most true thing about your relationship. And Paul says, no, it's not. No, it is not. You see, the bad news for the Gentiles was that they had no access to God. Sound familiar? That they were strangers, that they were aliens, that they had no hope, that they were to never experience God. And what does God do? What does God do in Jesus? He is our peace. He is our peace and he makes peace by his own blood, by his own death. It is the death of Christ that actually reconciles these very deep historical sort of um, tensions that existed in their church. It's the same thing, my friends. With their relationship, there was death. There was no hope. And now because of Jesus, there is hope. And it's not just a hope of being friends. It's not just a hope of sharing physical space. It is a hope of experiencing the God of heaven together. It is a hope of seeing the world actually changed because of who they are and what God does in their community together. The new status, the good news is that they are one because of Christ Jesus. And so what? So what? Um, this time, instead of talking about works, Paul talks about house. He says, look, you were once strangers, and now you're members of the house. God's been building a house for thousands of years. He built this house when he called Abram into a relationship with him and changed his name. He kept building this house when he called Moses this sort of orphaned boy floating on the reeds to be a part of his eternal purposes. He kept building this house generation after generation 
through blessings and through disobedience and through exile and through recovery. God is building this house and now he's telling these Gentiles, look, here you are. This is your house too. And it's not just that he's building the house and that these Jews and Gentiles together are members. It's that they are being made into a dwelling place themselves. A dwelling place for God. Which I also find amazing because, again, there's no reason that you should take this sort of building thing of the Jews and this sort of building thing of the Gentiles and somehow make them into a thing that can house God himself. There's already a dividing wall between them of thousands of years of history. (laughs) How is it that they come together? You know, it's kind of like um, if someone's going to serve me a gourmet meal and the first course is this lovely kind of kale radish bacon salad um, and you just eat it with this light vinaigrette and it's so good. Oh, it's so, oh, I wonder what's coming next. And then they serve you chocolate chip pancakes. Huh? And now you're like, uh, can I speak to the chef, please? Uh, can you tell me your little vision here? How, what's the relationship between the, 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 the wonderful kale salad and the chocolate chip pancakes? And he's like, well, I don't know. I just felt like it. You just felt like it. You're a, you're, you have two Michelin stars. You're one of the best chefs in the world. What do you mean you just felt like it? That is not God. God doesn't sort of put these things that don't go together. So he, he knows what he's doing. And it looks crazy. It looks crazy. It looks like a kale salad and chocolate chip pancakes. But it's a dwelling place for God. The other implication is that, um, is that actually these two disparate people have a shared identity. And their shared identity is wrapped up in Jesus. It's all wrapped up in Jesus. The thing that actually these Jews and Gentiles have in common now is Jesus. Um, which before Jesus wasn't true about any of them. Now, because of what Jesus has done, They have a common identity as having been rescued from death and having been saved from hostility. They have a common identity. Um, Let's talk about shared identity for a minute. Let me see if the next slide will come up. There we have it. Uh, Those are my groomsmen from my wedding. And, um, you know, I think about... uh, what it means, what it has meant for me to kind of pursue racial justice. And, and this whole thing of shared identity is the first thing I think about. Uh, because in God's whatever plan, I ended up having these groomsmen as my groomsmen. Um, I'll give you a little tour. Um, we'll start in the, in, the, in the back row. That's Stephen. Um, Stephen and Luke. Uh, then you have uh, the groom, that's me. Next to the groom is my brother. It's actually my half-brother. Um, and then you have Ryan in the back. And then you have Anthony, who's my best man, 
kneeling on the left, Masaki, and then Sam. Um, and let me tell you, I met all these people in a funny way. Most of them, except for my brother, uh, I met my brother at the hospital. Um, <laughs> most of them I met, actually, uh, through the ministry of InterVarsity. And I will say most of them, at first, I just did not like. I didn't like Steve. I definitely thought Luke was a jerk. Um, Anthony was a bit of a, I don't know, seemed like a, he was more into the ladies than into his relationship with God. Masaki was a little too angry. Sam was a little too arrogant. Um, Ryan was nice. Boring, but nice. Uh, um, and over time, um, it was actually uh, my relationships with many of these men uh, that formed how I saw the good news of Jesus in what it meant to pursue and experience racial justice. Uh, there was bad news first. So you got Luke, the tallest guy, second to the left. Uh, my second year, Luke and I are developing a friendship. Uh, Luke is a really outspoken person. Luke is going to tell you the truth 99% of the time. It's not going to always sound good. Um, and, you know, one day I had an experience uh, at UCLA uh, where a bus driver, where I was sitting kind of in the front of the bus, and the bus driver asked me to get up and give my seat up for someone. It wasn't because they were disabled. It wasn't because they were uh, somehow in need of a seat. They just asked me to do it. I felt troubled by this. And I was telling Luke this story. And Luke was like, I don't see the problem. It's like, what do you mean you don't see the problem? And then Luke also, what you have to know is Luke thinks he's funny very often. So in moments where there's a deep kind of seriousness, Luke will crack a joke because he thinks he's funny. Luke was not funny in that moment, and I threw my shoe at him across the room, and it barely missed his head, but it left a significant mark on the wall. That is how my friendship with Luke developed. Um, You know, when I was prepping this, I told myself I wasn't going to tell you what story I would tell. I would just uh, look at the picture and tell you about who I felt like telling you about. Um, I'll tell you about Anthony. Anthony's kneeling. He was my best man. Um, and I'll, I'll get into this a little later. But um, Anthony is Taiwanese-American. And um, it was in Anthony's house that I believe, no, this is true. Uh, it was Anthony's house where I believe I experienced uh, Taiwanese food for the first time. Um, I, um, I remember staying over at his house. We actually lived pretty close to each other in Southern California. Uh, so at some point we were just hanging out and I decided to stay over. Uh, and I was staying over for dinner and his mom just sort of put a bowl in front of me. Like I wasn't, we were actually just sitting in the kitchen. We weren't even waiting to eat and the bowl just came. I was like, all right. Um, and uh, I will never forget eating that bowl. I will never forget it. Uh, because of two things. Number one, uh, it, it is sort of like when I think of Taiwanese food, I think of whatever was in that bowl. Um, and I'm not going to attempt to like 
say the name of the dish because I will mess it up. But suffice to say, there was rice and a soy sauce egg and some pork in that bowl. It was brilliant. Everything about it. And there was some, maybe some gailan on the, on the side too. Um, but it was just that she, like, we just sat there eating. And I felt like I was at home. And I still remember the moment so clearly. And I remember being confused by the moment. Because I was like, no, I'm not home. I'm at my friend's house. Why do I feel like I'm at home? <laughs> um, Anthony and I um, have, um, for many years, talked about what it would be like for our world to experience racial justice. And we have attempted to live that out in our friendship. Um, I can tell you about that in other ways if you're wondering. Um, but it was this moment where in a home that I knew was not mine, that I felt like I was home, that I was feeling like I was experiencing a glimpse of this shared identity. It was just a taste, but gosh, what a good taste it was. Um, so we have this shared identity. No matter where we come from, Paul says to the Ephesian church, you come from this tradition, you come from this tradition. Because of what Jesus has done, we have this shared identity. Uh, so what? What do we do with a shared identity? How does that solve anything? How does it solve anything? Um, I'll say this really quickly because I actually want to talk about some of the applications from my life uh, that feel important. But in Ephesians 3, there's this word that comes about. It's the word mystery. Um, and I want to read from you a little bit from Ephesians 3. I'll start at the beginning. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you. And how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote about, above in a few words. A reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind, as it has now been revealed to his holy prophets uh, to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and shares in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This mystery. And you know, I've been fascinated by this uh, kind of notion of mystery because when Paul writes about a mystery, what he's actually writing about is I want you to think about a maze. I want you to think about a very complicated 3D maze. So you're in this sort of cube thing and you find yourself at the entrance and you know you have to get to the center, but the cube is sort of rotating. It's this crazy thing. And as you think you're going one way, you actually end up feeling like you're going another way. It is so complex. It is so complex that you need someone to lead you through it. You can't get through it on your own. So there's a guide. This guide appears. And this guide knows how to get everywhere. He knows where he is all the time. No matter what source of orientation there might be. No matter what axis upon which the cube base is spinning. He knows. He knows where to go. He knows which way to turn. This is a mystery. 
Why don't you go to the, go two slides forward, maybe. Uh, one more. Boom. The thing about mysteries is that they're complex. The thing about mysteries is that they're hidden until revealed and that someone has to reveal it to you. There's a custodian. Um, and this is the sense of mystery that Paul invokes when he talks about the Gentiles being fellow heirs, members of the same household, shares in the promise. That this mystery is actually something that he was already talking about and all that stuff in Ephesians 2. He already laid the groundwork for the mystery. So it's not actually surprising to us that he would make this very bold statement because he's already said it. He's already actually said it kind of twice. But the thing about it, and this is kind of the way that God sort of prodded at my notions of racial justice. The thing about the, a mystery is that I don't get it unless the person holding it leads me through it. And I've had this conversation over the past few years with God. As I have looked at my Facebook feed and watched the news and seen black boys and black men and black women and black girls be shot dead in the streets, their blood filling the boulevards, people fighting over whether or not it's the police's fault. As, we, as I have struggled, I realized um, there's a lot of ways that I just want things to be right. I want it to be better, partially because I'm a conflict-avoidant person and partially because I want people to respect my dignity. And in the midst of that, what I have also realized is that if anything like justice is going to come, it's going to come because Jesus leads us through it. It's going to come because the Jesus that saves us from death and life, to life, the Jesus that removes these dividing walls that historically separate people, that Jesus is going to lead us through it. And I find that both incredibly encouraging and upsetting. Because that means it's not going to happen my way. <laughs> it's not going to happen the way I want it to. But I'm being asked to trust Jesus. I'm being asked to let the Jesus who holds this mystery of racial justice lead me and lead us into what that means. Um, I'm going to end by telling you uh, three things that I think Paul um, kind of shows us about what it means to pursue racial justice in his context, right? Um, and I will say, as I, was, as I was preparing this, I looked at this list, and uh, I, felt, I felt kind of tickled by this list. Um, and there's three things I'm going to tell you. Pray, suffer, and read the story of God. Pray, suffer, and read the story of God. Um, again, I'm not making these up. In Ephesians 3, these are three of the things that actually Paul identifies with being himself. As a minister of the gospel, these are sort of three things that he identifies with. Number one, he prays. So if you ever go to the, the end of Ephesians 3, he has this elaborate, amazing prayer. Um, and in that prayer are these words. Um, 
and I don't have a slide for it. I'm just going to read it to you. Now to him, by the power at work within us, is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we could ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. To pray for racial justice is actually to pray for something abundantly far more than all we could ask or imagine. It is to believe in something abundantly far more amazing than what we could ask or imagine. Um, And what I have learned is exactly what I was sharing with you, that the reason that, that God was able to sort of rebuke me and tell me that racial justice will come because I lead you to it and not because any person makes something fancy enough to display racial justice is because he's taught me to pray over the past few years. He's taught me to imagine something far greater than I could even imagine. That process is generally disturbing because we have to let our current imaginations die. We have to let our small dreams go. We have to overcome the fears that come about when we think about, well, what is that going to mean for me? To pray. And then he says to suffer. Oh, who wants to hear that? Gosh, I don't want to suffer. Really? Um, And as I was thinking about this this morning, um, what I've experienced, um, the thing about those men in that picture is each of them have actually suffered with me. So after Luke told his dumb joke, he apologized. And then we sat down for a few hours and I explained to him how that event made me feel. And he sat with me, not trying to make me feel better. Um... Each of those men has been in my life and has done that thing for me. They have suffered with me. They haven't tried to make me feel better. But they've hoped with me. They've apologized. They've listened to me apologize. Um, I think suffering is, at this point, um, a thing... Uh, that, you know, it's easy to read Paul, and Paul sort of embraces sufferings. In Ephesians 3, he's like, don't worry about me and my sufferings. They're for your glory. And you're like, be quiet, Paul. We don't like that you're in jail. We don't like that because you believe that this racial justice is possible in Jesus, the Romans have decided that you were a threat. We don't like that. I would imagine... That as we make decisions in light of this gospel and the way that Jesus leads us to racial justice, you might encounter suffering. It just might happen. And sometimes the suffering is because the people around you just don't get it. Sometimes the suffering is because you've chosen to be sacrificial in a way that requires you to not live a certain kind of life. But Paul suffers because he believes in this story. And the last thing is to read the story of God and even to tell the story of God. Um, I've gotten used to calling the Bible the story of God. 
And the reason I do that is because it is a story. It is the most powerful story ever. Um, And I happen to think that stories generally hold great power. And these days there's a lot of narratives going around about who people are and where they come from. About what is hope and what is change, what is joy. Um, And one thing that I have um, been had the pleasure to, of, of, of having in my life is people that have taught me how to read the story of God and to see the ways that even in Jesus, in the life of Jesus, this whole thing about racial justice, it was his idea from the get-go. Jesus doesn't end up at that well with that woman if he doesn't understand that there is something profoundly different about them and that he wants to both reconcile those things and call that woman into mission. Jesus doesn't end up in the town, in the region of the uh, Gerasenes with that demon-possessed man who says, I am legion, and who's got tons of demons just all over the place, who they've chained up in a tomb. Jesus doesn't end up there telling that man, no, 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 do not follow me. Go tell everyone what God has done for you. He doesn't do that without intention. He knows that he's Jewish. Jesus knows he's Jewish, and he knows this man isn't. And he knows what he's activating. This thing is Jesus' idea. I want to encourage you. You can go back to the story of God. You can go back to the story of Jesus. And there's all these ways that you'll start to discover, huh, is that what Jesus was doing? And perhaps it's not the only thing. But it's a thing. Um, The last thing I'll say is that, um, you know, talk about mystery. Um, I have found in my life that uh, the journey of racial justice has been always unexpected. Um, There's a way that, in particular, over the past 15 years of me following Jesus... Uh, The journey of racial justice has been sort of in and around the diasporic, beauteous, complicated Asian American community. It is crazy to me. This is not the life that I expected. It is not the life that I would have written for myself. Um, And if I even go back more than that, I can tell you that some of the highest highs in my life and lowest lows of my life have come in my relationships with folks in this diasporic Asian-American community. Um, The first time I heard the N-word was from someone who is Asian-American. The first time I accepted Jesus was from someone who is Asian-American. After I said I'd follow Jesus, the only reason I kept following Jesus is because a Filipina-American woman basically said, be mad at God but just hold on to him, and I'll hold on to you too. Um, Some of you know this. Um, The story of my relationship with Erina and her parents is one of some of the highest highs and lowest lows. Um, Having Erina's sort of Korean um, parents struggle with who I am and how to understand me. This is not a story I would have written for myself. It is not a story I would have asked for. It is the story that God has given me. And what I have found is actually um, a deep and profound 
sense of joy as I pressed into the way that with folks that I would never have imagined having relationships with, he creates this shared identity and leads us in this cosmic mystery. Um, can I pray? Let's pray. Jesus, I wonder, I wonder what you have for my friends here. I wonder how you will teach them to pray. I wonder how you will teach them to suffer, and I wonder how you will teach them to read the story of God as one where because of who you are and what you've done, you have made a way for us to see racial justice. I feel confounded by my own story. And you get all the glory, Jesus. What a strange story it is. I pray that you would begin and continue to write strange stories among my friends. Strange stories of people who choose into communities and workplaces and relationships. Who choose into advocating for issues and for problems and for solutions. Because they see what you're doing. Because they see that you have brought us from death to life. Because they see the way that you have broken down divisions in your very blood and in your very life. Would you give my friends courage? Would you show them what it is that you are indeed generous and faithful, Jesus? And God, would you expand our imaginations? We do pray that you would do abundantly far more than all we could ask or imagine. And that you would have glory. You would be glorified in the work of your church, pursuing you in this way. We pray in your name.